Welcome to season three of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time, filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Okay, we are back in this uh, episode with Danielle coming to us uh, from Massachusetts. What's the town again specifically called? Ipswich? Correct. Is it Ipswich though? Because it reminds me of an It's It, which is a really (laughs) yummy ice cream cookie sandwich, but it's Ipswich. You got it. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Ipswich. Uh, So coming to us from Ipswich uh, in Massachusetts, Danielle, welcome back. It is uh, currently, I believe, June 9th, uh, 2020. And I guess I'm saying the date now so that it is sort of giving the listeners a sense of what we might be talking about in the context of when we're talking about it. Um, And also because uh, in Reno, Nevada, where I am, it snowed on Sunday. So I want to be very clear that in early June in Reno, Nevada, it also snows. So um, yeah, there's a lot of wacky things um, happening. And I just kind of want to note all of them, again, in the context of not only who, but when and what that looked like. So Danielle, many things have happened since the last time we talked. Um, it's been challenging to figure out how soon to talk to people um, because I wasn't anticipating a national and international and global uprising against the police and fascism. Um, and so I was trying to give people more time so that maybe more would happen, like the summer would happen, like going out and starting to visit people would happen, a potential upswing in positive COVID numbers and going back to sheltering in place would maybe happen. And then all this started to happen. And now I'm having to interview people sooner than I had anticipated to really get um, you know, on the record what is happening at this time. The last person that I interviewed was my now 11-year-old niece, and it was before she and I started to attend a protest um, against the police department and militarized police and defunding the police and supporting the movement for Black Lives. And many things have happened since then, and it's only been a week. Mm-hmm. And so, Danielle, as, as we get started, I want to know, what is happening in your world in Massachusetts, in Ipswich, in Danielle's circle of community and friends and family? What kinds of conversations are you having? What kinds of resources are you sharing and collecting? What kinds of information and narratives are you really noting during this time? Um, And just really share as much as you want about what your life has been like in the last month with everything that did and has and is currently going on. Yes, Felicia, thank you for having me. Thank you for this podcast and for documenting the times. I'm thrilled to be here. And so much has changed since the last time we talked. I think you gave a really great summary of the global uprising for Black lives that has unfolded 
as a result of the murder of George Floyd, which of course is part of a continuum, a legacy of violence against black bodies, as we know, as we discuss, as we've always discussed for years, as we've known each other. And something really significant that I'm seeing in my small town, which is mostly white, is that people have taken to the streets. In the town square on Sunday, middle schoolers who are 11 and 12 years old organized a Black Lives Matter protest where they're standing with signs. And I drive through the town center and people are beeping and waving at them. There was a, uh, a moto march for those who need to self-isolate that was organized where people were driving through the streets of the town with Black Lives Matter you know, defund the police, end police brutality now, safety for all, uh, you know, all communities, right? And this, this, this reckoning that's going on in this mostly white place, that there actually is a difference between what we are experiencing as public safety and then the safety that's actually not available to black bodies, in other places, and maybe even in this place. I think that's gonna be a deeper level of inquiry. But I've been involved in this town for 35 years, and I never thought I would see the day that people would be standing out in their yards, holding Black Lives Matter signs, waving at a parade of cars who were standing up for the same thing. And it's one thing to say that. It's one thing to say Black Lives Matter. It's another thing to actually bring our bodies to that, to bring our life force to that as white people and actually demand that the power arrangements in the society shift. And that's our work as a generation right now, is to change these power arrangements and end this violence. So you and I have a lot in common with this particular story that you're sharing in terms of like living in Ipswich for 35 years and never thinking that you were going to see this day. And I wonder if you could share... What was, what was life like growing up in Ipswich in, in like, describe what it was like that you then come to the conclusion that this will never happen there. Ipswich is one of the first parts of this land that was colonized and people come to worship the civilization that colonizers built here. And as a kid, I learned almost nothing about the indigenous nation that was here before those colonists arrived. I was not taught to understand the wrongs that they committed. And I was indoctrinated into this idea that these people who came on a boat from England actually brought civilization to this land. And so my earliest formative notions of productivity were actually shaped by something that caused genocide. And that genocide was not described that way. I was never introduced to this land in a sacred way by the people who have been stewarding it for generations upon generations. And pretty much for my you know, whole upbringing in this town, I was not aware that whiteness was a thing. You're a teacher, you know what it says in the textbooks. What I read about was the civil rights movement. I read about Dr. King and the work that he did. I read about 
Rosa Parks. And I read about these other white people who were bad in the past who got shut down by good people and that racism was over and that there was peace and justice in the world. And because I'm in an isolated small town, I didn't have exposure to any other truth. And so it wasn't really until that I was in my, so I wasn't raised with a, you know, you talk about, we talk about white supremacists. We talk about um, those, those folks who are actively trying to defend whiteness. I wasn't raised that way. I was just raised ignorant to the reality of what's going on. Ignorant to the ways in which my whiteness was facilitating my experience in the society. And so it wasn't until I was older that I began to understand the complexities of structural racism. And of course, police brutality is just a part of structural racism. It's a whole wide field. Where else did you learn or not learn these things? Because you mentioned textbooks, you mentioned being in the classroom. Like what else was, who and what else were your teachers during that time also giving you information or responsible for maybe not even knowing themselves information to then pass on to you. Like it isn't just the classroom. I know that that's a heavy presence and place where that happens because young people spend so much of their day and life there. But what else would you say was also responsible for that education that you got? Well, you and I, connect a lot about media and representation in media. And when I was growing up, I didn't know that everybody on TV was white because that was normalized for me. So it was very rarely that there would be an empowered uh, person of color in, in a show. In fact, often when I look back on shows from the 90s and the 80s, uh, it was often actually a mockery. You know, the, the, the characters of color on certain shows were actually a mockery. Or the... I mean, do uh, you remember Webster? Yes. Do you remember Webster, this very small child who turned out to be a very, you know, short adult who was adopted by the white parents, the Papadopoulos... Right. And it was sort of this like, it's a little bit better than different strokes, which mm-hmm. was also around like the same thing. Um, and and do you remember um, Benson? Yep. You know, like and then you've got the love boat. There was only yep. there was uh, what was his name? Arthur Albert. No. What was the name of the black bartender on Love Boat? Oh, oh my gosh. I can't remember. Wasn't it Oscar? Um, Anyway, have to look this up. Yes, yes, and then and then there's no like gay people. There's Jack Ritter who's like pretending to be gay in Three's Company just so he can live with two women. Like there's all these things going on. And I remember watching Dukes of Hazard. Do you remember that? Yep. My dogs are going Confederate right flags. Yes, but I had no idea that that was the Confederate flag. I had no idea that like boss hog was basically like the super, you know, like racist, you know, like there's so much that didn't happen, but there were some other things that came, that came on during that time. Like, um, did you see the Cosby show? Did you see 227? Did you see um, a different world? Were those, were those so starkly different? Did those really stand out as different television? 
Well, you know, I've heard, I, I guess I don't know. Um, I think what, in, ter- in terms of the, um, you know, the, the context of the, of the way that, that Black life was depicted through those shows, I've heard my friends talk, have a lot of different critiques about the ways that those shows really didn't reflect the breadth and spaciousness that's needed for people to understand the Black experience in America. You mean not everybody has their father as a doctor, their mother as a lawyer, and they just happen to like hit a limousine that has to be <laughs> wonder in it? That yeah, right. That's not an everyday <laughs> Right. Um, but, you know, I certainly um, was able to form, uh, you know, a connection to all of those characters on those shows. And I think that part of, um, you know, part of expanding out of a very uh, repressed, closed white space is actually finding likeness and connection with people of other cultures, ethnicities, races, because um, whiteness just tends to be very suffocating. Uh, the, the rules are very rigid. You know, in my small town, um, growing up as a queer person, I didn't even know I was queer because it was too unsafe to even think the thought. And I felt a sense of suffocation from the culture in the town. I didn't know what it was. And I think that that, knowing from my own experience that if I were my whole self, that I would absolutely not be safe, is what helped me to quickly discover solidarity with other justice movements and to quickly be able to listen and believe experiences that people were telling me about that I was not experiencing myself. Because when you know that that's possible because you've lived through it, I think you're more willing to extend that to others. Definitely. So you said something, which was that, you know, you start to see these young teens in your hometown of 35 years organizing these events in solidarity with the movement for black lives. And it's so different than your time there at their age. How do you think they got to where they are? We've, we've had this the very light surface discussion about how you got to where you were at their age, but how do you think they are where they are. What is influencing them? What are they seeing? What kinds of things are, are giving them the kind of support and education that this is possible and this is how you can do it? I'm really curious about that. And I'm really getting more and more curious about building relationships here where I live. You know, the, the pandemic has slowed me down and landed me here. So I want to know from them what's inspiring them. And I would guess that like, you know, that, that media is, is creating, you know how we say you, you can't go somewhere that you haven't gone in your mind first. Right. And I think right now, the way that the protests are, on the news, the way that even even the dirty corporate media establishment 
is reporting on the existence of these things. And I literally with- turned on my TV this morning, Danielle. I turned on my TV, which happens to be a TV that has like um, Prime on it and all kinds of things. I turn on the TV and it's a black screen with white font that says Black Lives Matter. We support the movement for Black Lives Amazon. This is the first thing that shows up on my TV. What is this? Yeah, I mean, that is another story around the way that potentially corporations are going to be co-opting or are not going to be, but are co-opting this moment without, again, actually, if we're not talking about shifting the power arrangements, if we're not talking about keeping black bodies safe, then we're not really doing it, right? But to your point, yes, that is becoming a mainstream message And I feel as though younger generations understand and back to those history books, right? When we look and we've seen many of these images on social media, it's really hard to tell the difference between an image from today and an image from 1968. And I was actually sitting with a friend around a fire recently and he said, well, one big difference is that now the police is militarized, which they were not back then. Mm. But I think the kids are, you know, the kids are looking at these images and they have a feeling in their bones that we're, you know, that we're living in a global society now. There's no denying it, right? The borders are falling apart. That's why people are trying to build walls. And, you know, there's, uh, we're in a, we're in a moment where we cannot turn away from what is happening. And I hope that, that, you know, the schools of Ipswich and the parents of this community um, are part of the reason why those kids felt safe to stand out there and do that. And I think the whole conversation around privilege, what is it? How do we actually leverage our privilege to make generational change? I feel as though all of that work that, you know, my elders have been doing, our elders have been doing that work, right? We've been active participants in that work of really cracking open this conversation. The data collectors, I mean, at this point, you can't argue with the fact that there's a, there's a disparity in health and wealth outcomes that is directly correlated with race. So we have data, we have, um, you know, our own experiences, we have a popular culture that is not turning away from this. There are, you know, many musicians, filmmakers, Uh, television actors, poets, political leaders who are standing up and saying, not on my watch. This ends now. And I hope that that that's part of what's inspiring kids. And the fact that they're all connected to each other, right? Like we saw with the global, uh, the global climate interventions that kids started making. It's like, Lord knows what app they're using to plan their actions and share resources. I mean, they're light years ahead of us, right? We're like trying to pull together a Google doc. The kids like have built another world. I mean, I, I remember growing up and having my like political awakening in the mid early nineties that, you know, we barely had pagers, you know, and, and soon we, we had cell phones, but not too many of us. We, we maybe were starting to get computers and the internet was available. So email was around, but like, that's it. And we were able to organize quite a bit, but mostly at a very like local, perhaps as big as statewide level. And we'd have to travel 
and like meet and have big meetings and lots of time together to then organize things on a national level that would happen over time, right? So you meet in an October in DC, you'd like ha- make all these plans for what you were going to do for that whole academic year. And then you would roll that out on the agreed upon months and weeks that you had. Now we have people who can communicate in an instant and say, tomorrow, show up at this place, right? So our ability to sound an alarm, our ability to put out the bat signal, our ability to, you know, say this is needed here is so much faster. The response time and the ability to share that out is so much faster. And these young people have seen other young people organize ginormous events, the March for Our Lives, you know, um, event and, and movement that began, you know, and I hate for people to be talking so poorly right now about the youth, especially around March for Our Lives. We're like, and where are they now? Well, you know where they are now. They got older. They're in college. And now they're also protesting and, and supporting things for Black Lives Matter. Like they didn't go away. They just expanded and they spread out into all the different places that are, are, are also still needing them. And I guess, you know, um, I am so inspired and excited that it's young people. And I think I forgot that we were young people when we did it too. Like, (laughs) you know, we're talking about folks who are maybe like 11 and 12, like active in things and, and putting together things at 14. Like I get that and totally respect that, but that was already happening. It just wasn't maybe as well known as it is now for the same reason that we can quickly organize and turn people into things and out to things, right? And so I think um, I think a question that I have is, you know, these things of really shining a light on, calling out, and the birth, really, of the Black Lives Matter movement began under President Obama's watch. It began before this current administration and the kind of activism that began then under the Obama administration is very different than the kind of activism and the movement that we see happening right now that we're still in the middle of. And I'm wondering, what do you think would be happening right now if all of these murders since Trayvon Martin still would have happened but we were under the Obama administration. Do you think that the protests and the movements in the streets would still happen? Is that because of Trump? Um, because it feels like there was a lot of passive, you know, people were being pacified under the Obama administration because it was a black president. It's very easy to be out in the streets and call it white supremacy when there's clearly a white supremacist in the White House. So I'm wondering, what do you see as the difference in terms of these administrations? And what do you then you know, potentially anticipate if a Democrat does win in the fall? What will happen to this movement work? Interesting. I think that something that's missing right now in the current administration uh, is any attempt to build peace between people. I feel as though the, the, the direction of the U.S. government right now is just purposely inflammatory because in all of that chaos, they can move whatever they want to move and make whatever they want to happen happen. And so right now, our call to action is a different kind 
of, you know, you know, we're responding to a different threat than what we felt we were responding to under the Obama administration. And I think that with a more diplomatic and reasonable president, such as we had with President Obama, that there would actually be efforts underway to bring people together right now. And I think that there's, whether we have, you know, the left or the right in office and the way that current U.S. politics are operating, I participate and I vote and I do my best to make sure that we don't have someone in office like we do now. But I also think that those systems have never satisfied me. They never go far enough. And, you know, recently when talking to friends about how dysfunctional the electoral college system is and how it's, you know, people have sort of cracked the code of how to uh, steal elections using the system of the electoral college. One of the things that I kept coming back to is that really in my life, the changes that I've seen that have meant the most have happened on local, regional, and statewide levels. And many of and it's because it's easier to bring people into agreement at that smaller scale. And so, you know, one of the social movements that's been important for our freedom, Felicia, of course, is gay rights. And when I look at what the state of Massachusetts was able to do before the federal government was ready, it actually opened up space for people to see like, oh, wow, there's gay people there. They're open about it. And Massachusetts is not falling apart. I mean, I know there are some people who think that Massachusetts is falling apart, but, um, you know, those little, uh, those smaller scale environments, we can actually prove that innovations work. And if you look at Massachusetts, you know, we were one of the first states to have universal health care. And it was one of the, the models that Obama used to develop his plan. And you know, learning from the mistakes because we were already out ahead innovating on that front. And so I think, you know, in specifically um, with the, the level of insurgency that's happening right now with both from the left and the right, you know, white supremacists, but also anti-fascists who are really swarming right now into the protest space and creating chaos because that's what they believe is needed right now. I think that that is disjointing what is a much wider and a group of people who could actually reach agreement on ways to move forward. I think that the vast majority of people actually would like for black lives to be safe in this country and for the structures that exist in our country to actually reflect the values that we say we have. And I know people have work to do to get there. What does that look, what does it look like to shift that power arrangement? What do you have to give up? What do we have to create? What do we have to imagine? Where do we need to cry? All of that needs to happen. But I think the vast majority of people want to come to the table and do that work. And even under Obama, we had a near constant state of disappointment. 
because of the people who were left behind in these large scale countrywide policies. And I think we have a much better chance of getting it right at the local and state level and then demanding that that be replicated on a federal level. I wonder, you know, this thing has been happening really since Trump uh, came into office, which is that everyone sort of like looked back at our previous administrations and said, we thought that was bad, right? That's sort of like relative uh, perspective shift of, wow. And I'm wondering, do you think that there will be a time in the future moving forward (laughs) where we might look at the current you know, Trump administration and go, wow, we thought that was bad. Of course. I mean, I hope not. Right. But we we came of age politically during the Bush era. Right. That would that seemed absolutely impossible. I mean, we were dealing with the Iraq war. There were um, just so many global humanitarian injustices that happened under that administration. And in the living of it, it was very intense. It was very hopeless. And it seemed, you know, especially with the same conditions there, that it felt as though he was unjustly put into office to begin with. And it felt like peace was a very far away dream in the context of of a Bush presidency. Yes, but then we got Obama. What are we going to get after (laughs) Trump? Biden? Oh, good Lord. Don't even... I mean, the the pendulum hasn't swung far enough in the other direction, you know? Um, I mean, I I, I would like to touch on some of the things that that you just mentioned. Thank you so much for bringing in the idea that before many things changed, whether it's with healthcare or whether it's with, you know, uh, queer rights, that Massachusetts was sort of the, the innovative state to begin to implement some changes, right? And that then the rest of the country was able to say, see, we wouldn't be necessarily starting from scratch and something that we have no idea what it would be like. We have this example over here. Do you think that that same sort of philosophy and idea and progression will happen with Minneapolis, you know, disbanding their police department and really sort of being the vanguard of the innovation um, behind having a different way of keeping peace in a community that isn't militarized and isn't under a historic organization whose purpose is just to basically keep Black people unfree? I hope so. You know, one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about in my house this week is what would a structure that, what would a structure be that actually supported public safety, exploring and redefining what does public safety mean, and to actually reframe the job from policing and surveillance and protection into actually creating a, a system of safety for all. What does that look like? And I think that we've seen other disbandings of the police not result in real change. Like for instance, you lived through the disbanding of the police in Compton. Did anything change? Mm, Yes and no. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the same in New York city, right? It's like people have tried these moments of 
the, the, the sort of um, letting go of the so-called bad apples and coming in with a new mantra of how we're going to run things. But I think that there's some kind of underlying assumption that needs to shift in people to actually understand that communities don't need to be policed, right? That's not what public safety is. And that actually the root of policing comes out of slavery. And, and I mean, I say yes and no to the question about did anything change in, in Compton when their police force got, you know, uh, broken up and, and disbanded. And the issue is, Yes, you saw a dramatic change in police brutality going down, um, in people being incarcerated unjustifiably, um, harm, like these kinds of things went down. But the police and policing changes aren't the only thing that are causing harm in any of our communities, right? Also the lack of jobs, the lack of livable wages, the lack of, you know, like really well-funded education spaces, the lack of, of funding for the city to improve its streets, its sidewalks, to add trees, you know, like there's so many other factors um, that policing is at the core one, but it is not the only one. So getting rid of, so it's basically like if you live in a house where there is one of the adults in the house is domestically abusing everybody in the house. Just getting rid of that individual from the house doesn't mean that the people in the house are now completely better. They have to heal. And there are now long-term dramatic effects that they're gonna have and they're gonna pass on to generation, to the next generation and the next generation. And so this is not a simple, easy fix where if you just get rid of one problem, the healing automatically will begin because this is generational trauma. This is generational genocide, you know, that has been happening over decades. When people talk about 400 years, and now we're basically almost at 500, let's just name it, let's just really do some math. You know, we're talking about something that is going to take a long time to heal. Like, and we're gonna know that it has healed if there is a generation that wakes up and says, wait a minute, we once had police? There was once a time where we, where we were just killing each other because we were afraid of each other because of what we had learned and was just ingrained in our body to fear. That's unbelievable. Until that happens, until the story of this time reaches a generation where they do not believe this history because it is so ludicrous then we're not there yet, right? That doesn't mean that it's not worth the fight. It just means there's so much more that has to do, that has to be expanded. And you know, the, the constant reference to a few bad apples is constantly framed in the idea of a single crate. We're talking about a few bad apples in an entire apple orchard farm all across the globe. This is not a few bad apples in a crate. This is a few bad trees in an entire orchard and they're infecting all the trees because if we're talking about fruit those trees talk to each other underneath the earth at the root so at the root level these trees are rotten and they are producing rotten fruit and to sell us that fruit and to say that it's safe and that if it causes you harm it was your fault and not the apple's fault that is egregious beyond anything and you know, I think I, I was recently home last week. I went to a protest. Before the protest, we saw all these, you know, black and brown and Asian youth wrapped in, in gay pride flags. 
And my partner and I were both from Orange County. We were in Orange County visiting family. And we saw youth our age when we did or didn't come out, out and proud. We rolled out windows and we yelled at them, you're beautiful, happy pride. And they were surrounded by their parents. And their parents turned to us and were like all smiley too. And then we went to a march in our home county and town. And we marched through neighborhoods where migrant families, you know, had signs out too that they were in support. We marched amongst really, you know, like elders also in the Asian American community with us. And at that march, we were by far one of the oldest people in that march. The medium age in the action in Santa Ana, California was around 21. And we were the elders. Flash to me coming to home in Reno, the demographics here are much different. There's not a lot of young people. It's mostly people in their 40s and 50s, a lot of retirees, and then small children, right? So the, the level of like youth to like lead is not there. So who's leading the actions here? People who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they have very different politics, and they have very different perspectives of the world. They call the police to escort them to a march. That's against the police. They, they go and thank bikers who are across the street, biker gangs, who their presence is so intimidating. They go and take pictures with them. Oh, thank you. We have militia here. You know, we have armed people who look and dress just like National Guard with their khakis. And there is militia here all up and down the state of Nevada. There was KKK and militia members in the city of Fallon. There is a growing militia here in Reno called the um, Lightfoot Militia. There are also three percenters. Are you familiar with what a three percenter is, Danielle? No. Okay, here it goes. A three percenter is part of a militia movement that came out of Idaho. They're now all over the country. It really began in 2009. And the 3% refers to, by the way, it's not true. It's not an actual percentage. Somebody made up this story about the Revolutionary War against Britain and, you know, coined this term, the 3%. And it's this belief that during the American Revolution, only 3% of the colonists fought against the British during the Revolutionary War, but they achieved liberty, quote unquote, for everybody. So they call themselves the three percenters. And their view is that basically they are modern day revolutionaries. Okay. And they're fighting against a tyrannical U.S. government. Instead of the British, they're fighting against the government. So tell me, if you're a three percenter who believes that the government is tyrannical, why the hell are you at a protest supporting the police? Did they forget that the police are part of the government? And so it speaks to the fact that the militia are the police and the police actually believe that they are the revolutionaries. And it's that the police actually believe that the government is bad and that they won't pay attention to them. That is really the conclusion that I'm drawing. It's not that you believe that the police are the government. It's that you believe that the police are actually three percenters and they're against the government. And you see that all the time when Obama and any other administration is trying to stop the abuse of the police. They say you're anti-police. But when you have an administration like our current administration that is like beat everybody up, kill everybody, and we will make sure that you don't pay any accountability or price for it then that's the government that they actually like, right? Because the current administration is also three percenters. They also believe that they are fighting the tyranny of big government. 
And so it isn't that the three percenters is a small militia. It's actually that the three percenters are all over the place. They are the Trump supporters within the GOP party. They are the current administration. They just don't wear the patches proudly as this militia movement does. But they come out with AK-47s. They come out with bazookas. They come out with bombs. They come out with their cameras and their cell phones. And they say, we're going to record all of the protesters here because we're going to keep our city safe because the police couldn't do it. But then we're going to zip tie you. We're going to do a citizen's arrest and we're going to hand you over to the police. It's just absolutely out of control. I have never been an activist in a community where the biggest threat were people dressed up like the military with AK-47s. That's why I don't have a voice right now. Because as I was leaving, the vigil for George Floyd and for Breonna Taylor, the vigil, I had to pass about 16 militia groups, 16 militia members, sorry, individual members on two different sides of the street who were blocking the sidewalk to get to my car with my cane, by the way. So as we're leaving, there's two queer youth on the corner who are taking video and who are talking about the militia and who they are. And there's something about it being June. There's something about it being the Pride Month. There's something about this being queer youth on the corner recording and speaking loudly so that the militia could hear. There's something about me being older and not wanting them to get hurt. There's something about me having a real hard time right now being a pacifist. There's something about being at a vigil and seeing white folks, grown men with weapons yelling, we're here to protect you, that I lost my mind. And I started yelling at them. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. Why are you here? And it was probably not the best move for a lot of reasons. I had a cane that I'm banging against a barricade and they have weapons of mass destruction. But speaking to the history of our communities, whether it's the you know, amazing you know, activists in the disability movement work, whether it's the amazing activists who weren't activists at the time, but who were just fighting to live in the bars of Stonewall in New York or the Black Cat in Los Angeles, whether it's the, you know, uh, Chicano Moratorium and the brave students in East LA who walked out um, of their classrooms also because of police brutality happening in their communities. I'm not really sure exactly what it was, but I have spent the last 20 years of my life dedicating myself to not keeping my mouth shut. Because if I've learned anything in my years as a history teacher, the people to blame for the injustices in this country were the ones who kept their mouth shut. And they had privilege and power to open their mouths. I don't have a black body. It tans nicely in the summer and it gets real white in the winter. And that allows me to have a particular kind of privilege 
Even though I'm Mexican, even though my father was a migrant to this country, even though my first language is Spanish, I get, even though I'm totally butch and genderqueer and what the newspaper still gendered me as female and a girl and a woman. But like, even though all that, like there's still a little bit of power that I have in my voice and we all do. Should I be out there protesting just finishing chemo a month ago? No. But can I afford to continue to be on this planet alone because I did nothing to help my brothers and sisters who are out there just trying to stay alive? I don't want to live in a world where I'm alone and here, but without the people I love because I was too afraid and felt that my life was more important to preserve than theirs. And I, I guess I'm wondering, have you ever experienced militia at, at a protest? What, what is your advice to those like myself and folks in Michigan and folks in other of the 45 states that have open carry laws where there is militia? You know, we saw the militia come out as protesters blocking hospitals and putting people's lives in danger before this uprising began. Do you think there's a connection there that we saw the militia coming out and doing these things? And then there's this this uprising for black lives. Yeah, I mean, before I say anything, I just want to thank you for your courage, Felicia. You know, you are an inspiration in the way that you your instinct is to get out there and speak truth to power all the time. And you're willing to put your life on the line. And I just honor you for that. I honor your legacy. And I'm so grateful that you just shared that story of how you unpack your privilege. And that is what we all need to be doing right now. And really figuring out who are the people who are most vulnerable in this moment and how are people who are less vulnerable get into the mix and actually protect. And I have never had to deal with militias before, but we have through the years and particularly over the past few years, we have seen this mounting militant force And the the deepest part of me that's afraid is afraid that we're entering into a period of civil war or that we're not entering into it, that we are in a period of civil war and we're not calling it that. And what I've been, you know, in the conversations that I've been having with my many, you know, beloved white family and friends is around um, this, I think there's a disconnect that happens where um, people, white people especially, I think are so horrified by the, uh, the values that the folks in the militia stand for. You know, most of the people I know are horrified by those values. And they, in reaction to that, separate themselves from it. We separate ourselves from it. There's that, it's like I was talking about earlier with history. There's that bad white person. I'm a good white person. And I think what gets lost in that is actually this recognition that like, I am, I am that. They are supposedly protecting me. And the, um, the, benefits 
that I receive from the system, whether I consented to them or not, I am receiving them. And I think that there's, there's something big for white people to step into around owning that we have, that we have received ease and safety in the society. And that in fact, the society that these militia members and these hate groups and these other, you know, violent, um, uh, violent movements are calling for is actually not the world that we want. And that we're actually, we actually don't, the rights that they're protecting are not what's important to us. And that the less vulnerable bodies need to be the ones who are interfacing with those people. Because I think you're right. Those kids standing on the corner are at risk, right? And for you as a genderqueer, brown-skinned person, you're more at risk than if you were with, um, you know, some bulky white person who they, who would, <laughs> in the sense, um, they might be afraid of, right? Or they might not have the same level of hatred for, that their bias may not be stimulated by. And it's not to say that you or any other person who stands up to them shouldn't or that you can't hold your ground, nothing at all like that. Like I said, I mean, I, I honor your courage. I just am afraid that they will have a stronger reaction to you than they might and uh, some other white person, given what we know about racism being so much a part of this undercurrent. I mean, I, I, I hear you and, and, and I appreciate all of your words and, and your support. And I guess when you said, I, you know, that you're afraid we're entering a, a civil war, I immediately thought, did we ever leave it? Like, did, right. we, did the civil war actually ever end? What, how do you explain Jim Crow? How do you explain, you know, what we're living in right now, if it actually ever ended? I yep. don't think that it ever ended, because essentially, when, when slavery was abolished, all we were doing was defunding slave owners. Yep. We have been in a defunding process and tactic of defunding the ones causing harm for decades. That was at the core of what the Civil War was about, defund slave owners by taking away their, quote, property. Right. Yeah. And so what do we have then? We have the rise of the KKK. We have police created. Right. And so, again, if the police and the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists really are birthed out of the, quote, end of the Civil War, I beg the question again, did the Civil War actually ever end? Yeah. I mean, that's the best reframe I've heard in years. It didn't. And one thing that strikes me in the way that you explained it is that the, we've been in a process of defunding. We've been in a process of taking away. And that defunding process has not been equally matched with investment. And it's actually investment in communities that cause them to thrive. And I think that that is going to be a really important component of right now is for us to figure out how are we going to move money to these places? How are we going to repair the damage that's been done? Because, yeah, there's a healing of the heart that needs to happen. There's a, 
a consciousness that we can all share. There's a love that people from different walks of life can have with one another. But we need to rectify the material situation and power arrangements in the society in order for us to have peace. That's what people are saying. No justice, no peace. And part of justice is for everybody to have access to the various different structures in the society that make living a little bit easier, that make innovation a little bit easier. The tax code, um, the way that people, uh, that, that wealth gets passed down through families, the state and condition of school systems, access to health care, um, the ability to walk down the street without being harassed for no reason, right? These are all things that need to be shifted and, and people who've been impacted by the injustice in these systems need to be invested in directly and, and, and deciding for themselves what they need. There's no one who needs to come in and tell neighborhoods what they need. Neighborhoods know what they need. Give them money. Is that the only way to define investing is through money? Because we're also in the middle of a pandemic where we have the largest, you know, unemployment rate at the same time. We're on the brink every day uh, of a new economic, you know, uh, depression of some kind. And so are there other ways that everyday people without money can also invest in their community? Well, we actually, we've talked about this in other episodes, I think, you know, through... Uh, exchange. Another. I mean, that's a way that, as you pointed out in that conversation, communities have been investing in each other for a long time. And I think that that mutuality can extend even farther. You know, if, you're, if your community is, uh, is pretty comfortable, what can you extend to communities around you and I think one of the places where it gets sticky is that people roll into a community thinking that they know what the community needs. And it's really a practice and people need to learn how to take a step back and, uh, and actually respond to the request of the community and to understand that their idea of how things should be is not the only or the correct way to do it. And so I think central to any kind of investment, whether it's relational, whether it's material, has to be community voice and community prioritization and community values shaping what the actions are. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that investing doesn't just mean money. If you have it, that's what it means. If you don't, it can include <laughs> mutual aid and also where you spend whatever amount of money that you do have, right? Yes. Like if you're ordering things from Amazon, that's not investing in your community. Yes. If you can find a local vendor or a local creator or maker who can make you what you want, then that's investing in your community, right? Like I and especially have, if it costs a little more. Right. Right. Because they live here. Right. Like, and if you can get, if you're a business owner or you have the means to create a business, find out what your community is lacking and create a business in creating that very thing 
to then provide what your community needs, have people investing in their community needs, and you responding to your community needs, right? So like, there's a way that you can get super, super local, and it would be to our benefit to do so, because not doing so is how we ended up in a place where we have no masks for our our, our, you know, nurses and doctors and folks who are delivering food and folks who are making food and all the essential workers, delivery folks, all of those, you yep, know, people right. who require PPE, if we were able to make those masks here in the United States, instead of, you know, sending out factories and owners and saying, oh yeah, no, it's totally okay for you to go do that in Asia where you can pay just quote unquote slave wages to people mm-hmm. in other countries so that you can make more money. Right. Like there's so there's so much of how all of this is global. It's not shocking to me that internationally and globally, just as people were willing to shelter in place and change their lives because of the covid pandemic, that people all around the world are having their own support, you know, rallies and marches for black lives or and and those marches and those actions are also in direct confrontation with their own community's history of racism and tyranny, right? It's not shocking to me because every country on this planet can identify with having a police force or a military force that is abusing their power in that way. And so I don't, I don't, it's not shocking to me that these two things are happening at the same time. And I guess what I'm most curious about and most afraid of is that group that popped up right before all this, who were blocking the hospitals and who were these militia and these white supremacists saying, you don't get to tell me what to do with my body. We get to tell everybody else who doesn't look like us what to do with our body. And I guess my biggest fear is what's their next move going to be? What's their response going to be? We're already seeing it in these states like the one I live in that have open carry and have active militia who are turning up and turning out. And I'm wondering if you can imagine, what advice do you have for me, Danielle? I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in war. I don't believe in violence. When I, this last Sunday, was yelling at the militia, my amazing weapon was my voice which I'm now struggling to continue to have in this interview. So does me yelling at people who could potentially cause violence to myself and others, is that really the act of a pacifist? No, that's why I'm struggling with my own values and belief in pacifism. What advice do you have for someone like me and others who might be listening, who also don't believe in violence, who also don't condone it, but who also are in such deep pain and sadness at what is happening and what they're seeing, is it okay to yell at folks who have weapons of mass destruction? What can we do alternatively? Because I have only been thinking about, do you, do you remember that group, and I can't remember their name right now, who shows up at funerals? for like Matthew Shepard and others. And they're this Baptist organization and they hold up these signs about like God hates fags and I'm glad you're in hell and all these things. And then this queer group decided to make these things that they strap onto their shoulders and PVC pipe goes up really high. And they then have these huge like angel wings Mm -hmm. and they stand in front of those protesters to not allow them to be seen. Because part of the militia is that we haven't seen them use their guns yet. 
Their power is in being seen. Mm-hmm. Is the best way for us to take away their power is by covering them up? Should I be making these sort of like big wings out of felt and have a sign that says your presence will not be felt here? Like, mm-hmm. what are the ways? What are you asking me for? You're brilliant. You've just come up with like nine different ways. I'm just a no, I'm asking <laughs> you like what, what, what in your opinion and in, in your, you know, wheelhouse and experience and skill set and wisdom, what, what do, how do we as pacifists, and I'm oh. saying me and anybody else associated as a pacifist, what's our best, our best way of, of acting and being right now? Should we even exist? Is this not a time for pacifism? And, and or what do you think is the best way to disempower the militia? You know, I really like where you took, where you took the question. You know, when you started to noodle on different ways and, you know, make connections between where have other movements been successful at doing this. Um, I mean, I personally worry about your safety, yelling at the militia people. Um, Whatever you needed to do in that moment for you, I think was the correct action. And I don't think that yelling at them is going to actually change the power arrangement in the country. And so the direction that you took it around, you know, creative interventions where we actually make visible, like you've done in this episode, you know, as you've been educating us all, where we make visible the underlying assumptions that are holding together their worldview, and then turn to everyone and say, does this reinforce our values? Is this who we are? Are they protecting what you care about? Because they're certainly not protecting what I care about. And then, in fact, to turn towards what do we care about and build that. And, you know, in this moment where weapons of mass destruction are available to everyday people, that's a twist that I don't know the answer to. How are they going to be disempowered and protected? And I worry, in fact, that 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 will, um, you know, cause people to respond with more, with wanting more weapons. Like we need weapons to protect ourselves from the people with weapons. And I think there's got to be another way to pacify them. Um, and, you know, one of the thinkers who has um, influenced movements around the world is Gene Sharp, you know, and, and I um, was reminded by a friend recently that we really need to go back through and, and look at uh, the, the different types of nonviolent intervention that were described in Gene Sharp's pamphlets, because um, we can actually, with creativity, with our force and numbers, we can shift the tide of what is acceptable. You know, I was disappointed, for instance, in Ipswich, um, you know, for the same reasons that you described. I was earlier in the, in the podcast, I was disappointed that the march that we were doing, uh, the, the Moto March, was actually in conjunction 
with the police. That doesn't make sense to me. That action logic doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I, it, it caused me to think about, well, what's more important to me in this moment? Is it more important to me that there's more cars in the parade or is it more important that I stand out from this protest because I don't agree with the action symbolism, right? Um, and I think that there are going to be um, alliances that can be built with the existing protection structures that will help um, that will help with this with the the armed militias and things like that. I mean, even though I don't, um, you know, trust the direction that the, the federal government, for instance, is, uh, is using in directing the National Guard, there could be a moment, like you remember that photo from the 1960s where the people are putting flowers in the guns of the police. You know, each of these actors that exists in these systems, all of those apples on the tree, they have their own individual consciousness. And as the consciousness of the people within the systems begins to shift, the systems themselves shift. And I think that it doesn't have to be my work and it doesn't have to be your work to be doing that inside the system transformation of, um, like we can still be fighting to defund the police and people could also be fighting to, or you know, working with the police to try to shift the consciousness from within that system. Those things don't need to be oppositional. And the, the, the sort of the way that we think about it with, you know, direct action and narrative and consciousness, I think now is an incredibly important time for imagination and for us to expose the cracks in the system and for us to show that another world is possible. Thank you so much for that um, that insight and that guidance about Jean Sharp, who passed away in 2018 in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and I'm just reading one of one of his quotes: "The power of rulers derives from consent of the subjects. Nonviolent action is a process of withdrawing consent, a refusal by subjects to obey." And it got me thinking immediately of if we don't call the police, if we don't need the police, it's almost like boycotting the police so that they are not seen as needed or useful. It can't just be defund them and get rid of them because everyone's automatic response is, well, then who do I call when I need X, Y, and Z? We need to give folks that alternative so that it is both, both pronged. So in cities and communities where talking about defunding the police and disbanding the police is so hard for people to grasp and understand, we need to give them the other world is possible in reality so that they can see that there is a safe alternative and we need leaders in the communities to help support and invest in that you know, alternative as well. And we were actually thinking of creating um, some kind of a, a group that is a spectacle sort of satire group to expose <laughs> uh, what's happening, you know, um, 
And uh-huh. I, 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 I was uh, influenced by folks who were coming up with creative ways to call out white supremacists who were marching um, or, uh, you know, militia members. The guy, do you remember the guy with the tuba? Who went out uh-huh. by himself and followed these marchers yep. by just playing circus music? Right? Or the clowns who yep. came out during uh, KKK rallies and they would just, uh, they had a bag of flour, baking flour, and they would say, white flour, white flour. And basically it was like, we're clowns here because these are clowns. Uh-huh. These are clowns. These are not to be respected. Uh-huh. These are not an authority figure to actually take seriously Uh and and to basically like expose that they are not real police officers, that they are not real national guard and that their presence and what they want to do is very real. And it is not something to be taken seriously. That's right. Um, And I think that, you know, there's a lot that can be done creatively right now. And I appreciate this conversation and and this idea and this talk um, and just this like debrief of what's happening in the world. And yet this season was not about this. Mm. The season, season three, was supposed to be, again, much later in the summer, almost the fall. And I was asking everyone to think about if a television show or movie, since we talked about the influence of media in the imagination of what's possible for the viewers, if a TV show, a movie, a book, a comic, a song, an album was made about this time of the pandemic and now inclusive of this uprising, and you and your family were a central character in that cultural thing that is created what would the name of it be and what would the cover be so i know that you listen actually to a lot of music and you've been talking about a lot of albums and sharing the album covers and so i'm just going to make it very simple and narrow it for you if an album was made about this time and it centered you and your family's experience what would the name of that album be and what would the cover of that album look like? Well, my family is beautiful and we're doing a lot of growing together right now. And the name of our album would be The Reckoning and the cover would be a fire because in these times of social distance, we've all slowed down and we've had a few really potent fires together. and we're really talking about what's going on in the world and how to change our minds and our actions and the conditions that future generations inherit. I learned recently about the importance and usefulness of ashes and that ashes actually put out other fires, that ashes are really great fertilizers to help things grow, to help life come back. And I think that in this country, maybe even on this planet, because we have such incredible fires that destroy people's homes and communities um, and that are right now in California caused by the electrical company, that these fires have, you know, uh, a meaning to them that they're about destruction and that they're bad. And, While maybe those were not so great, what happened after those fires 
was the investment that then happened in the community to show up and to help one another. And I think that if we could understand that the whole planet is on fire, like the Sunrise Movement and others have been trying to get us to understand when it comes to climate change, you know, there's there's a narrative out there that we shouldn't be calling it climate change anymore. We should add a D. Climate changed, right? It's already happening. We're already in the, the next part of the civil war again. And how can we take the idea of fire and reckoning and squaring up our debts as not defeat and as not destruction, but as the beginning of the next phase where things will really be different? And um, I look forward to talking to you again, Danielle, and figuring out what does the post-fire really look like? Mm. What, is, what are the rest of the, the second, third, and fourth album, um, you know, that, that come after uh, this album of Reckoning? Um, what do they sound like? And actually, I guess that's my question. How would, you, how would you describe this Reckoning album? Is it like, is it acid rock? <laughs> is it, it hip hop? Is it jazzy? Is it classical? Um, is it pop? What is it? Hmm. I think it's, uh, it's a good question. I think it's eclectic. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's eclectic and randomly it also has, you know, all the lyrics so that you can sing along and learn how to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> On a kazoo, maybe. Okay. Um, Danielle, thank you so much um, for your thank time. Thank you, Felicia. For your wisdom and um, for just being in my life and, and being an amazing sounding board and, and near to this work. I appreciate you very much, and I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise. Thank you, Felicia. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human. <laughs>